Hello, dear listener. I hope my voice finds you safe, healthy, sane, and supported. I'm Rachel Zucker, founder and host of Commonplace, and I'm recording this introduction on May 12, 2020. I've been sheltering at home in Scarborough, Maine for a little over two months. In early April, after having sustained IRL contact with no one other than my husband and three sons for five weeks, I woke up with a powerful longing to hear how everyone was. My extended family, friends, loved ones, students, teachers, neighbors, acquaintances, strangers, and even unbeloveds. I wanted to hear where, with whom, and how every single human being on the planet Earth was. I wanted a global roll call. While I can't update you on the whereabouts and well-being of every human being on the planet, our next few episodes and patron extras contain personal updates from many Commonplace team members, former guests, and listeners. For weeks, I've been inviting listeners to tell us how they are. And listener, if you've been meaning to check in with us, there's still time. We're not done with this series of episodes. So if you want, call and leave us a message at 347-762-3405. That's 347-762-3405. Or send us an audio file at rachel at commonpodcast.com. Thank you so much to all of you who have reached out to us. It's been wonderful to receive and hold your stories. Over the past month, I've contacted each and every formal guest of Commonplace. That's over 90 people. And I've received many beautiful emails and recorded hours and hours of phone calls. In this special episode, you'll hear excerpts of my phone conversations with David Trinidad, Alice Notley, and Tina Chang. I'll read emails from John Murillo and Kathy Park Hong, audio message from Ada Limon, and an original essay, Life in Covidian Times, written and read by M. Norbessi Philip. In the next few episodes, you'll hear from many other listeners and guests, including Bernadette Mayer, Erica Meitner, Kristen Prevole, Darcy Steinke, Yin Yi, Stephanie Burt, Alicia Joe Rabins, Alicia Ostriker, D.A. Powell, Destiny Birdsong, Marcelo Hernandez Castillo, Kate Marvin, Victoria Chang, and Kava Akbar. On April 3rd, 2020, the Commonplace team, Doreen Wang in Taiwan, Christine LaRusso in Los Angeles, California, Jay Hammond in Phoenix, Arizona, and I recorded a call in which each of us spoke about how we were doing. We shared the personal challenges we've encountered since the start of COVID-19 and practices and resources we've been using to help us get through these times. We talked about anti-Asian and anti-Asian American racism, about Trump, about whether we feel hopeful or pessimistic. We talked about moments of grace. We intended to run that team conversation about COVID-19 as the first of these global roll call episodes, but then we changed our minds. Instead, we're going to share a slightly edited version of that call, just with patrons, as a special patron extra. So, for this episode, all patrons will receive access to the Global Roll Call Team Commonplace episode, which won't air on our regular RSS feed, as well as all the patron extras slated for that episode, which include recommendations by the Commonplace team of books, movies, TV shows, podcasts, music, online exercise programs, and recipes. All patrons will also get access to a vocal version of the song you heard at the top of the intro, Earthseed, written and performed by Trippers and Askers, a recording and songwriting project by Commonplace producer and editor Jay Hammond. Earthseed was inspired by the parable novels by Octavia Butler and is forthcoming in 2021 on the album Acorn. This early release is made available to patrons courtesy of Sleepy Cat Records. 
For this episode, all patrons will also get access to an audio file of John Murillo reading two poems from his incredible new book, Contemporary American Poetry. You'll receive Ada Limon's description of a loving-kindness meditation she learned from Sharon Salzberg, and some recipes that I've been sending to Tina Chang. Some Commonplace Book Club members will receive Octavia Butler's Parable of the Sower, courtesy of Grand Central Publishing, Contemporary American Poetry by John Murillo, courtesy of Four Way Books, Punk Rock is Cool for the End of the World, edited by David Trinidad, courtesy of Turtle Point Press, Kamiko Han's Foreign Bodies, courtesy of W.W. W. Norton, and Monica Sook's A Nail the Evening Hangs On, courtesy of Copper Canyon Press. A great many thanks to all these presses for books, especially at this difficult time. We know publishing has been hard hit. Some of you have limited access or no access at all to your warehouse stock and are trying to stay afloat. We urge all listeners to please support your favorite independent presses and bookstores by buying books if you can afford to do so. As you know, Commonplace has no institutional support, no ads, no corporate funding. We know that almost everyone is experiencing intense economic pressure right now, and that many of you have lost your jobs. If you can afford to become a patron of Commonplace, or donate any money at all, we'd be very grateful. We also appreciate messages of encouragement. After this special series of global roll call episodes, we will transition to remote recording for as long as necessary. We very much hope to continue bringing you intimate, meaningful conversations about art, life, and social justice. And we're experimenting with new ways of bringing the Commonplace community together, including discussion groups and some Instagram Live presentations. Please visit commonpodcast.com for links to the people and texts we mention in this conversation, as well as for a list of COVID-19 resources we've compiled. This list is by no means exhaustive. If you help organize or participate in a COVID-19-related mutual aid organization that you'd like us to add to this list, please let us know. On our website, you can also sign up for our newsletter, which comes out once per episode. It has been an honor listening to and gathering updates from listeners and guests. I've learned so much from each message, each conversation. My heart has lifted and expanded and sometimes broken from your stories of hope, woe, worry, and wisdom. Thank you for trusting me with your words. I began our team's conversation by playing a voice message from Commonplace listener Hannah calling from the Danish countryside, and I'll share that message with you all now. After Hannah, you'll hear from David Trinidad, Alice Notley, John Murillo, Tina Chang, Kathy Park Hong, Ada Limon, and M. Norbessi Philip. Take care. Hi, Commonplace. This greeting is coming to you from Hannah in the Danish countryside where I'm spending my days with my partner and my three-year-old kid who needs so much more energetic company than we're able to give him. And I'm frustrated, but I'm safe. And I'm exhausted, but I'm healthy. And I'm feeling desperate as I see borders closing and the increase in nationalist language by our politicians and frustrated at not having the tools and comfort of our regular responses, which would be planning a protest and gathering and finding our joy and our strength in our bodies pressed together but I'm also wondering if these ways 
have become too comfortable and if there are new forms of solidarity that are just waiting to be found during this time. I was very moved by Anne Boyer's text, this virus which sort of points towards new directions. I'm finding it really difficult to read these days and even more difficult to write. And although I call myself a writer, the strange thing thing is that um, the older I get, the less I feel able to resort to words during a crisis, personal crisis or a global crisis. And the more I feel the urgency to do so, both a political urgency and private urgency. So now I'm saying this out loud and sending you this message, maybe just as a quiet attempt at language of some kind and an attempt at something a bit less lonely. The thing is that commonplace keeps reminding me how very unisolated I actually am. Again and again I find a home in the voices of this podcast. So here is my voice. And thank you for unisolating me. So it shouldn't be so surprising that he was also the first to respond to my request for a personal update. David lives in the Andersonville neighborhood of Chicago. I'm in um, a little coach house that's, um, that I've lived in for about 14 years by myself. And um, I've been sheltering in place for almost a month now, I think. And um, I, I mean, I'm... It's, it's very quiet and secluded here, and there's a garden between my house and the building in front of me, and which is a small apartment building, and I'm used to a certain amount of isolation. Even though David's used to living alone, he said that he's been spending more time focusing on self-care. For example, he used to meditate for 20 minutes every morning, and now he does it twice a day. Because, as he said... It's not going to do me or anyone else any good to to just be in fear all the time, you know? Right. I asked David if he felt that poetry mattered at this time. Well, I, I guess, I, you know, I feel like poetry always matters. At least it does to me. And it, it's part of my daily life and daily solace and mm. stimulation. So David is writing in his little coach house. And he's also in a text group with fellow writers Eula Biss and Robin Schiff. They text each other poems every day. You know, we've read Dickinson and Notley and Williams and Plath and, did I say Whitman? Um, no. And it, it's been great, you know, and, and um, a lot of the poems I, I'm noticing have to do with nature. We talked about sharing poems during other difficult times, other past crises. Remember after 9-11 when the, that Auden poem? Um, oh, yeah everybody was talking about and we struggled to remember the name of that Auden poem which we later figured out was called September 1st 1939 and and this and this is one of the poems that we discussed in my little text group but you know the the excerpt from Spring and All by Williams by the road to the contagious hospital people were sort of, I noticed online people were sort of bandying that poem about but I I don't know it is it's just the first line, mm-hmm. and, and, and also it is spring in that poem, right? So he's talking mm-hmm. about new life coming up through the, the dead foliage, but it didn't seem to really fit. I mean, other than it being spring and there's a contagious hospital in the poem, I mean, it didn't seem to really fit our moment, but I, I guess I um, turned off by the desire to, to sort of take a poem and turn it into a kind of hallmark message mm-hmm. for the moment. Um, that doesn't seem quite right to me. And I know what you mean about, you know, that desire to find, you know, something 
a poem or something in the past that mm-hmm. there's just like a certain kind of like way in which people seem to want something that either foretold this disaster mm-hmm. um, or in describing something that is in the past that is like a, oh, look, people have always felt this way or, you know, mm-hmm. this isn't mm-hmm. the first time. And, and, and I can understand wanting that finding comfort in in that sense you know being connected to history and being connected to other people but i also share your feeling of there's something that when it's held up as uh kind of i always forget the word for this not an analogy not an anthem oh um not an analog. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> but all those things would fit, right? A, right. A metaphor or, you know. Right. Um, a, uh, not a parable. <laughs> <laughs> I really think it starts with A. Uh, oh, my God. This is hilarious. I just got a text from Josh. He's in the other room. This house has no mm-hmm. privacy. And the text just had one word. Allegory. Oh, that's brilliant. (laughs) And that's the word, right? Yes, he clearly can hear me. And this is not the first time I've forgotten the word allegory. Um, So that's hilarious. Yes, indeed, this house has no privacy. Um, David and I went back to talking about 9-11 and the AIDS epidemic and other memories from our childhood about crises and disasters. I have been thinking about 9-11 and AIDS and, and also my childhood. I mean, one of my first memories is the front page of the L.A. Times during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Mm-hmm. And there was a photo of grocery store shelves stripped bare. Mm-hmm. And it, it freaked me out as a child, the idea that, well, where's, where's the food going to come from? You know, and, and then we had drop drills in school where we had to crouch under our desks. Mm-hmm. But, but also, you know, AIDS, of course, it was... It was, um, I mean, it, it affected um, specific communities, right, and, and not the whole world. So, mm-hmm. But thinking of all the men who I knew who died during that period, and, you know, I was in Soho on 9-11 and, you know, heard the first plane and saw the towers fall, and um, that was very, you know, it, that was very scary, and I, and I, and I had post-traumatic shock syndrome for a while. It wasn't until I moved to Chicago that that began to fade. But that was the, you know, that we were, there was the, the, the haze of the smoke, right, for days, even yep. weeks. And and is that going to hurt us or not? And that was the first time I saw people wearing masks. You know, I, mm. I would look out my window and see someone pulling a suitcase up um, West Broadway wearing a mask. You know, mm-hmm. obviously, um coming from further downtown and um so yeah all those images are with me and um you know that sense of uncertainty i asked david whether having lived through 9-11 remembering the smoke lingering for days having lived through the aids epidemic and having lost so many people that he cared about whether he was trying to avoid thinking of the future at all whether the uncertainty was profoundly overwhelming for him well you know oddly enough i i feel sort of hopeful actually mm-hmm. and you know personally i i i guess i feel my relationship to the present moment might be altered mm-hmm. right because i i you know i whatever runs me normally is sort of fallen away you know um and if that makes sense so that again i'm just sort of slowing things down, being more present, um, rather than, oh, I have to do this, this, and this, and, you know, whatever daily ambitions I have, right, that are sort of, we're always there, like, maybe that can be different, uh, Mm -hmm. personally, but, um, and I have noticed, you know, like, I'm, you know, again, I've lived here for 14 years, and I've been fairly private, and I'm now meeting and talking to neighbors, you know, from a distance, from a safe distance, <laughs> mm-hmm. but, and learn, you know, learning who lives around me, just right outside my windows, you know, and um, and so that that feels, I don't know, just I because because this affects all of us, right? And yeah, um, so I I don't know, and I'm I'm hopeful that 
after this, you know, people will be more compassionate to each other and um, maybe the systems of power and control will change um, and should change. I mean, I think it would, I'm sort of reflecting something I've heard or read already, but you know, that to return, to expect to return to what was normal seems like would be misguided, right? Mm -hmm. Like how, how can it really be what it was? Um, and I think to try to go back to that, I don't know, that, that seems like a mistake. Yeah. Um, and that, um, you know, you know, we would treat the planet and wildlife and each other differently. I, I also feel hopeful, and I hope I'm not being utterly naive, um, but I do. And I don't know if I just have to in order mm-hmm. to kind of make it through every day and feel grateful, you know, for the, for the pleasures and safeties and uh, things that I do have and, and also manage the fear and anxiety. Um, mm-hmm. But I do, I do feel hopeful specifically about um, those powers and structures um, needing to change and maybe being more able to change now than they, right. than they would have been if this hadn't happened. Right. And I, and I like to think it's a choice, right? I mean, what you focus on or what you think about, um, I think that's a source of empowerment, right? That, okay, mm-hmm. I can either be hopeful and look in, in the looking ahead, or I can be catastrophic and apocalyptic, you know? And, um, I think that's a choice, yeah. you know, and, and it does affect your well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it doesn't really do anyone any good for you to be, you know, debilitatingly anxious. Right. Um, far agree, from yeah. it. it. I think it actually um, does harm. I mean, not everyone can mm-hmm. control it, but I think to work to make those choices towards when, when we can more sanity, mm-hmm. more, you know, more self care, more self kindness, more care for others and, you know, within the context of what's safe. Um, well, you know, and I've even had a couple neighbors, you know, I live in the rear, as I said, and f- from the front building, carry back packages and put them on my front steps. And I'm like, mm-hmm. they didn't have to do that. And that just seemed incredibly kind, you know, mm-hmm, and considerate mm-hmm. to me, you know, like, I know it's a small thing, but it was like, I was very moved by that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. David and I talk for almost an hour. He's a dear friend who I've known a long time and love deeply. With you, it's like I've, I'm just, you know, we've known each other, what, since like 91 or something, like mm-hmm. very early. And um, I, I just am so ha- grateful that you've always been there. And I love that you're there in my life and in the world. I love you. I'm so glad you're okay. I'm so glad you're alive. I'm so glad you're writing poems. And... Can you hear me? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, great. I spoke with poet Alice Notley at her home in Paris on April 10th, 2020. How are you? Um, I'm okay. I'm sitting here uh, in front of a table covered with pieces of paper where I've been making collages. Alice had returned to Paris earlier than she'd planned to, and it had had a difficult time getting home. She had been in Brooklyn living with her son, Eddie Berrigan, there for the New York launch of her newest book, For the Ride, which is a long narrative poem about a group of people who, after a planetary catastrophe, are involved in a project to save the language. The New York launch was canceled, of course, because of COVID-19, and Alice returned to Paris, where she says, The air is clean, and, uh, and it's great to walk around outside. Alice told me she feels lonelier, although nothing is actually very different from how she usually lives. I asked her if this was because of the emptiness of the streets. 
And now it's because I'm being told what to do. Hmm. I really despise being told what to do. It's it's uh, it's affecting uh, the quality of my existence at the moment. I don't trust the people that are telling me what to do. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that the habit of telling people what to do will uh, will become set in in some way. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid that people might get really used to telling me what to do, and I don't want them to do this. Yes. At the time we spoke, every time someone in Paris wanted to leave their apartment, they needed a piece of paper stating their name, date of birth, and reason for why they were going out. Without this paper, they would be fined. Alice has absolutely no confidence in authorities and does not like what she calls the fascist mentality of the lockdown. She believes that people have to break rules when they think it's a good idea. If you want to hear Alice say more about her fierce aversion to anything that resembles fascism, listen to episode 26, which I recorded with Alice back in early 2017. As you can hear, the sound quality of our recent phone conversation is pretty terrible, so I won't share much of the audio with you. What I will say is that it was, as always, fascinating, inspiring, and surprising to speak with Alice. Of course, I've ordered a copy of For the Ride, and I'm thrilled to be able to make a few copies available to Commonplace Book Club members. For the Ride was written in 2010, but sounds disturbingly apropos for our time. Alice says it contains picture poems, and I can't wait to see and read this new book. Alice is continuing to write. She's deeply involved in a project in which she has located what she calls T.O.L., the old language, or the Ur language, the language that is, in Alice's words, indigenous to the entire cosmos. She is also continuing to make collages, a long-time practice of hers, and has recently purchased a ukulele and has taught herself to play a few chords. Alice also told me, she's not sure why, but she's listening to the song The Chain by Fleetwood Mac over and over and over again, finding every YouTube version of Fleetwood Mac performing this song. Despite the fact that I'm much more anxious than Alice seems to be about COVID-19, I loved talking to her and was buoyed by knowing that Alice is in Paris, making collages, practicing her ukulele, listening to Fleetwood Mac, and locating the language indigenous to the entire cosmos. lovely email from poet John Murillo, who was, when he wrote, safe in Brooklyn with his wife, Nicole Seeley. I wanted to know how John was doing. I just recently had the honor of reading his new book, Contemporary American Poetry in Galleys, and I knew that it had come out from four-way books right when the U.S. started shutting down because of COVID-19. I wondered how John was feeling about the fact that all his events must have been canceled for this new book, his first in 10 years. John agreed to read two poems from contemporary American poetry, spelled with K's rather than C's, by the way, and this audio will be available for all patrons. Here's John's email. Hi, Rachel. I'm glad to know you're healthy and safe with your family. I get what you mean about being in that weird space where you acknowledge and live the pandemic with everyone else, but are also able to make something of this time. Nicole and I are well. Groceries stocked, roof solid, clothes clean. We only go out to take out the trash or move the car, and when we do, we make sure to mask up and wear gloves whether or not we think we'll run into anyone. Occasionally, we'll take walks through a nearby cemetery. We also have a small backyard if we want to get some sun on us without going through all the motions of gearing up. And we're catching up on shows, Netflix, Hulu, HBO Go, all coming in quite handy. Not to mention, we have enough books to last several quarantines. 
As for myself, I have a guitar I'm trying to learn, bongos, a djembe. I have my push-up bars, a yoga mat, jump rope, a pair of 45-pound dumbbells, and now, due to the most unfortunate circumstances, I have time. One thing I'll say, too, and I hope this doesn't sound too shallow or selfish, is that it fucking sucks that COVID hit the U.S. lockstep with the release of my book. I had to cancel at least a first few months' worth of readings, and as someone who doesn't really do social media and who hates technology, the whole virtual reading thing just doesn't much interest me. I've agreed to a couple, but really don't see myself doing many. Still, I feel like I should be doing something. Doesn't make sense to work as hard as I did for this book for the better part of a decade, only to watch it die on the vine. But again, perspective, right? In the larger scheme, these are probably bullshit concerns. Let me just be happy to be here, to be able to write this email, to be able, hopefully, to write the next few poems. Anyway, love to you and the family. Looking forward to seeing you on the other side of this. Abrazos, John. Tina Chang is living in Brooklyn with her partner and children. By the end of 2019, Tina said she'd done so much traveling, she felt sick. I just felt like I had had it with not being at home and not being with my children full time. And I yearned for the life of just staying put. I got what I wanted. <laughs> like I got, got what I want. I mean, I really did wish for it. I'm like, oh, I wish I could just stay for a while. You know, now I'm really, really staying for a while. Um, but I, I had taken um, parts of December and January to really refuel. And then once the pandemic really arrived here, I was set for a really, really, really busy month again in, in March. In fact, my busiest month of the year was probably, strangely, March. And then all of a sudden, in one day, every single one of my events was canceled. Mm-hmm. That was hard because so many of the things that I was about to do, you know, they were, they were you know, I guess I'm considered a, a gig worker in some ways. You know, I work, I work at a college and I'm, I teach at a college, but I also feel like I you know, kind of go around the country um, speaking not only about my work, but about poetry in general. And uh, when that was canceled, I really struggled in terms of how I felt. I'm like, well, you know, on the one hand, it's great because I get to stay at home and with my children. But on the other hand, like everything I was doing was like about to pay for their entire summer. And that felt really hard. But then when I stood back from it, I was thinking to myself, well, there are so many more people who are suffering in ways that I'm probably not even able to imagine right now. And I'm not one of those people. So I need to, I need to stand back, you know, really fortify myself in terms of being really grateful here and know that at least right now I could, you know, I don't have to worry about things too, too much. Um, But then, you know, once I sort of started settling within that, the way life goes is like somebody in my household became sick and it was in the exact same week that I was trying to get my children onto remote learning. Now, one doesn't seem like it's connected to the other, but all of a sudden I found myself really handling every, everything, you know, really trying to make sure that somebody was safe and healthy during this time, which felt like a 24-hour-a-day um, job. And then also at the same time, making sure that both of my children were learning and that all this, I'm sure anybody who's gone through them, this system, it's like all the systems were different and they were all over the place. And I was over here in the living room with one child trying to get them online in the system that that teacher was learning, was using. And then I was in another room with another child trying to struggle with the platforms that that teacher was utilizing. And so, and then thinking about somebody upstairs in, in the room, like, not well, not feeling well, worrying, you know, about the state of the world and also that person. It just, it was a lot. Having someone sick at home and trying to support her children in getting set up with remote learning was difficult. 
and talking to the outside world mostly didn't help. Tina found that people's panic about getting sick themselves made it hard for them to be compassionate. Tina told me that she wished more people had been able to look beyond their understandable panic and just ask her what she wanted and needed. Poet C. Dale Young posted something to Facebook, which Tina found enormously helpful. You know, this time is really hard for everyone and we must really forgive each other. Um, If somebody does something that upsets or bothers you, understand that we're all operating in a state of crisis and urgency, and some people are able to handle it better than others. So if Mm -hmm. there are people around you that aren't acting in the ways that you wish or hope for, forgive them. You know, take this time to really step back and be your kindest and your best self. And Mm -hmm. I felt like, you know, that message really came to me at, you know, really the perfect time. Um, because I think that because I had so much spare time, I was really kind of festering and a little bit of, of I wouldn't say the word of anger. Anger is so extreme. I think I was just in a state of being very displeased. Tina and I talked about how even after everyone in her household was, thank goodness, well, and her kids were sort of set up with remote learning, that this experience of quarantine is not at all like a writing residency. Some people imagine this might be a dream come true for writers like us. Some imagine that we're home writing all day. Yeah, Tina and I laughed at how far from true that is for either of us. And yet, Tina said, there are magical moments to celebrate and find joy in. You know, just yesterday I was watching my husband teaching my daughter how to dance. It was, mm. so, it, was so beautiful. it was so sweet. It was just so sweet. He just turned on the music and he was trying to teach me what to do, and, but the, the sun was going down, so they were completely in shadow. And I was just mm. watching their shadows like move around, thinking, gosh, this is so beautiful, and it's not something that I would necessarily have been here for if I was around just traveling and doing what I thought that I needed to do for, for my writing life. I would have missed this. I asked Tina about the anti-Asian American racism and violence that has, since COVID-19 and since Trump's racist comments, escalated across the country. At first, Tina said, I have so many feelings, it's very hard to talk about this. But we did talk about it, and she told me how frightened she was going out for groceries, especially as she lives in a neighborhood with very few Asian Americans. A few days after our call, Tina emailed me with a recorded addendum to this topic, which I'll play for you now. Thanks, Rachel, for this question. Uh, Ever since COVID-19 has arrived on our shores, there has been a tremendous increase in Asian American hate crimes. And I really can't tell you how important it is to know that it really starts with our leadership, the fact that our president, President Trump, referred to this as a Chinese virus was really the start and the indication to a demographic in the U.S. that it was okay for them to out and pursue and hurt Asian Americans. Um, Probably some of the worst case scenarios that I have read of or heard of involve children in which hate sees no limits at all, and Asian American children are harmed, are hurt, are cut in the face, bullied, punched in the head. Um, Just the other day, my son actually told me that he came home and he said that as he passed by a playground, he heard a bunch of kids saying to another child who was Asian American, they called him a virus boy. And I asked him, 
how it made him feel. And he said, well, it made me feel horrible. He said, because I'm Chinese. And he said, and not everybody knows I'm Chinese, but I am Chinese. He said, and it made me feel really sad. And I think that's how hatred or, or awareness of hatred is passed from one generation to the next. What is the solution to all of this? I mean, I think for, for writers, for artists, it is to remember and to record and be aware and write about it and out it. Um, and it really is up to our leaders right now, our leaders on a national, international, and local level to not allow this kind of rhetoric. It is essential. And if we have to write to our leaders to make sure that they're putting this at the forefront of a lot of their language, then we must. I think one of the a few organizations that I just really wanted to draw attention to that really support and uphold the voices of Asian American writers and artists. And if anybody out there wants to give to these organizations, it's particularly important at this time. Kundiman, an organization devoted to especially young and emerging Asian American writers. The Asian American Writers Workshop, which has helped me since my youth to give me voice and make me feel like I had a platform for to speak and that I had a right to speak. They are a very important organization in my life. And also the Asian American Arts Alliance. All these organizations are really worthy of any listener's support. And I'm, I'm just very thankful for anybody who's even thinking about being able to give at this time. At the end of our conversation, I asked Tina, if someone had asked you when things were especially rough in those first few weeks that you were under quarantine, what you wanted, what would you have said? She answered without pause, recipes. So since I spoke to Tina a few weeks ago, I've been emailing her links to some of my favorite quarantine recipes. These links will be available to patrons as well. Tina told me that she hasn't been writing or she hasn't been writing about the pandemic. She says that just as it was for her after 9-11, it will probably take her many years. She needs a huge amount of distance, she said, to write about the experiences she's having now. Right now, Tina's been enjoying comedy, reading, and charades. She told me she's been enjoying The Cut, which is a television show that's an offshoot of Project Runway, and a funny video sent to her by her husband of Conan O'Brien teaching a woman to drive. She's been reading for pleasure and sustained by this reading. Here are a few of her book recommendations, which will also be listed on the Commonplace website. Tina's been reading Kathy Park Hong's book, Minor Feelings, an Asian American Reckoning, Kamiko Han's Foreign Bodies, John Murillo's Contemporary American Poetry, Monica Sook's The Nail the Evening Hangs On, and Rachel Eliza Griffith's Seeing the Body. Thank you, Tina, for sharing your experience with me and with the Commonplace listeners for these book recommendations, for asking for recipes, and reminding me of the holy simplicity of asking someone, what do you need? What do you want? And if possible, fulfilling the request. days after my conversation with Tina Chang, the New York Times Magazine published an essay by Kathy Park Hong called The Slur I Never Expected to Hear in 2020. It's an excellent, important, usefully enraging piece about the way COVID-19 has unmasked vicious anti-Asian racism and violence in the United States, racism that was always present. Kathy describes worrying about her relatives in South Korea, while her mother was worrying more about Kathy in the United States. 
Kathy observes that as an East Asian woman, she had been used to being overlooked and underestimated, but now, on the streets of Brooklyn, felt hyper-visible. In her article, Kathy writes, To be Asian in America during the time of coronavirus is to feel very alone. You might think that everyone's alone during the pandemic, but it's a different form of isolation carved out by that insidious model minority myth with its implication that as long as you worked hard and didn't ask for handouts, racial inequities could be overcome. Since the first cases were discovered in the U.S., I kept imagining the coronavirus as an irradiating purple light lancing through the cracks of our white supremacist world. Some of us never noticed these cracks before, but now it is all that we can see. African Americans and Latinos are dying in higher proportions than anyone else in New York City, perhaps because of their lack of access to health care and because many of them are essential workers and can't shelter at home. But systematic racism keeps minorities separated. White supremacy ensures that once the pressure of persecution is lifted even a little from one group, that group will then fall upon the newly targeted group out of relief and out of a frustrated, misplaced rage that can never touch, let alone topple, the real enemy. I emailed Kathy to thank her for the article and to ask about the writing of it and the reception of it after publication. I also wanted to know if the fear she described has abated or increased. In her response to me, Kathy writes, Working on the article kept me sane, actually. To focus on an assignment, even though I'd had to barricade myself in the bedroom with the white noise machine to work on these writing assignments. A lot of people have read it, which makes me feel good. But it's disappointing to learn that there are also quite a lot of humans out there who don't have an ounce of empathy in their souls. I'm not bothered by it, more important that it helps Asian Americans who are afraid. My fear is not as intense as others. I have my husband and my daughter. I rarely go out. But I know a lot of Asian Americans, especially women, who live alone, who are afraid, who never go out, and who have been harassed. I'm also worried about Asian Americans who are essential workers, since they're out there not only exposed to the virus, but harassment. Readers have been grateful, saying that my article reflects how they feel, but also there's been pushback too, from the predictable readers who say I'm overreacting, to those who keep saying that Chinese people eat pangolin, so it is in a way the fault of Chinese people, to people who say that I'm being naive to be surprised by the racism. The latter is more a reaction to the title of the article, which I didn't choose, rather than to the content of the article, I think. Racism is always impervious to facts. It doesn't matter that the virus came from Europe. The Chinese as yellow peril is just always under the surface, even for people who've never heard that before. And it's out in full force now. People are angry and scared, and they want a scapegoat, and it's easy to scapegoat people who look different, especially under Trump. I hope you're continuing to find clarity and peace in Maine. Love, Kathy. to poet Ada Limon about something I'd noticed she'd posted to Twitter. She'd been talking about a loving-kindness meditation that had helped her. This is the audio response that she gave me. The rest of her response, in which she describes step-by-step the loving-kindness meditation, will be uploaded as a patron extra. Hi, um, this is Ada Limon. And I hope everyone's doing well. I have been home now for, I guess, the same as everyone since the beginning of March. And uh, it's been intense. Uh, I was sick in March. Uh, I did test negative for COVID-19, which was a gift. (laughs) Uh, But I was still really sick. And so April, I have been trying to refocus again on 
my health and on poems, which keep me healthy, and trying to rebalance some of my chaotic and stressful panic energy that this sort of uncertain time has been throwing at me. Rachel had written and asked if I would share some of the ways that I've been coping and getting through. One of them is I've been sharing a poem a day on my Instagram, which is nice because then I search for a poem that means something or, you know, is helping me through this particular time. Sometimes they're hopeful, sometimes they're dire, sometimes they're just poems that make you pay attention again. Um, I'm sitting in my office right now. I can see some geese going by in Kentucky. And I thought I would share also a meditation that I've been doing, and I'm by no means a meditation expert. Um, and I will say I'm the first person that find that finds it when people talk about their meditation, um, I find it a little obnoxious. <laughs> um, I, my two best friends have always said that one of the reasons they didn't want to do yoga with me when I lived in New York was because they didn't want anybody to tell them when to breathe um, or how to breathe. And I respect that. Um, and so this is a meditation that um, may or may not help you, but it's definitely been helping me lately. It's called Metta, uh, Loving Kindness Meditation. I learned. Don't forget to check out Ada's Instagram for her daily poem, I also recommend following Ilya Kaminsky, Victoria Chang, and Kava Akbar on Twitter for their generous posting of amazing poems. Last but certainly not least, we have a piece of original writing, Life in Covidian Times, which was written and is read now by writer, poet, playwright M. Norbessi Philip. Covidian catastrophes. This morning I sat at my kitchen table reading the newspapers I usually do, and suddenly tears came to my eyes. I was crying for us, humans, not out of fear or panic, but as I read the toll this virus was exacting on the world, the only response was to weep. For us, for the world, and all the miraculous and astonishing life it contains. There is no doubt that this virus is a corrective of some sort, and I'm hoping that out of this will come some changes that will relieve the intolerable pressure we humans have been putting on this beautiful planet of ours. Nor do I doubt that this is a game-changer. What the world will look like after this is anyone's guess. At times like this, it's easy to use the adjective biblical to describe these types of catastrophes. But my mind turns instead to what it must have been like for many of my ancestors who were brought here to this not-so-new world. I wondered who those original ancestors were that boarded the ship at anchor in some harbour along the west coast of Africa. Were they children? as they are children today without parents in refugee camps in parts of the world we don't visit as tourists. Were they men or women, or both? A vibrant young woman, perhaps a strong young man? I think of the journey they would have made across the Atlantic. I think of that journey and also think of the journeys too many are making today, fleeing across borders be they in the so-called old world replete with old problems gussied up in new clothing, or in the new but still old world of the Americas. I think of what a catastrophe that journey would have been for these ancestors, continuing the catastrophe of being caught and sold, and perhaps bought again only to be held in the stinking slave fort before shipment. I cannot imagine the horrific crossing in the hold of a slave ship, but I think of it and of the continuing catastrophe of enslaved life on a plantation somewhere in the Americas or the Caribbean. Oh, I think of the catastrophe upon catastrophe of being sold off or seeing your loved ones sold off, as I think of the catastrophic life that far too many of our brothers and sisters live today. They are our brothers and sisters under the skin, living with uncertainty as we do now, living with the terror 
of daily bombings, living with being maimed or seeing their loved ones maimed, living with daily deaths. I think of the catastrophe of what living in a refugee camp must be or being drowned at sea, trying to make a better life somewhere else or having your children taken from you and caged in the bosom of the heartland of democracy and wonder if we will have more compassion for those strangers who are now our kith and kin in catastrophe. And yet ours is still a far gentler catastrophe, to date at least. There is toilet paper, after all, and running water, and health systems, albeit overtaxed. The tears have now dried on my face, the paper lies open on the table before me. I think of the COVID-19 virus, invisible to the naked eye, which has wreaked such havoc in such an achingly short time, and see the parallel with another virus, albeit metaphorical, the virus of greed that spawned that earlier global disruption and destruction of nations peoples and cultures. Indeed, it uprooted the world as it was then. We can call it colonialism, imperialism, or whatever we care to. But like COVID-19, it has penetrated our lives as it did the lives of our ancestors and left in its wake a plethora of ills, racism, sexism, classism, xenophobia, the bedrock of our catastrophic lives today. Many of us, like the scientists tasked with finding a vaccine against this most recent illness, have been working over time to inoculate the world against these ills, to return us to some semblance of normalcy, stability, my thoughts break against the impossibility of the meaning of those words as my mind turns once again to those unknown, unnamed ancestors. I wonder at the fact that they survived that extended catastrophe which reaches into my present and which also brought them unwilling to this part of the world. But here is my hand resting on the newspaper and I am filled with a fierce joy and wonder. I am alive because of them. I am here, now. And knowing that, knowing that I am the evidence of their surviving that particular set of catastrophes, shows me up as nothing else can in these catastrophic Covidian times. been listening to episode 86 of Commonplace, the first in a special series of global roll call episodes. I'm your host, Rachel Zucker. This episode was produced and content edited by the entire Commonplace team, Doreen Wang, Christine LaRusso, Jay Hammond, and me, and sound edited by me and Jay Hammond. The music you're listening to now is Earthseed, from the forthcoming record Acorn by the band Trippers and Askers. Acorn arrives spring 2020 on Sleepy Cat Records. Thank you to all the Commonplace listeners and guests who have responded to our call for personal updates. Thank you to Omain Gruich for transcribing this and other Commonplace episodes. Thank you to Grand Central Publishing, Turtle Point Press, Four Way Books, W.W. Norton, Copper Canyon Press, and all the presses that send us books. Thank you to our patrons. You make Commonplace possible. Thank you to all the first responders, healthcare workers, medical personnel, caretakers, and essential workers of all kinds. 
Thank you to each and every one of you doing the daily work of caring for yourselves and for others. 